everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Seen and Heard podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by Julian Ashby, Chief Insight Officer at Beef and Lamb New Zealand, to talk about what is now a pretty well-known and well-discussed piece of work. In fact, we were just talking off-air about um, what's happened since it was released. It's the, the life cycle analysis of New Zealand sheep, meat and beef, or as um, you may also have heard it described, the carbon footprint of our beef and sheep meat. And we'll we'll talk a bit more about that in detail, um, some of the things that are in it, some of the questions that have been asked about it. But first, uh, welcome on to Seen and Heard, Julian. Um, we'll start with the basics. What's your role? What's Chief Inside Officer do at Beef and Lamb New Zealand? G'day, Aaron. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so I have been here about 10 months now. Um, as the Chief Inside Officer, I have been responsible for getting reports like this, getting research commissioned, um, We've done one recently on um, how much land is getting bought up and turned into pine trees. Um, topical issues, get the research commissioned, turn them into um, short fact sheets and, and social media tiles and get them out to the public and the government. Um, my role is all about trying to influence both the government and the public and um, make sure that um, all of the latest science and, and research is being used when decisions are being made. Okay, so you're sort of across a across a lot of the work that Beef and Lamb does, particularly, I guess, like the Economic Service, some of their analytics and survey work? Yeah, exactly. Work closely with the Economic Service. Um, the data we've been collecting there for 70-odd years is, is invaluable to the conversations we have with government. So very interested in um, in the insights that they generate. Yeah, that's good. And I guess... Um, I guess it's farming. There's a lot of anecdote out there, but the beauty of uh, the bit of work we're talking about today and with the likes of the Economic Service, we can um, test anecdote and, and back it up with with facts and, and assessments. So um, let's get right into it. You, basically on behalf of Beef and Lamb New Zealand, you led this piece of work or you led the sort of the, the, the rollout of it, the interpretation of it? Yeah, I, uh, I inherited it. It was already um, well <laughs> underway when I joined, um, but I have shepherded it through the last last few months before we, we released it publicly. Um, so we had worked closely with Ag Research on that and then um, were waiting patiently as they got that published uh, to the Environmental Impact Assessment Journal, which is what we timed our release um, with. Yep. yep, and certainly a lot of discussion about that and a lot of people nodded and said, yep, that's what we thought or we knew or we felt and others said, well, this is this right and, and looked at it. but. How long, just to give an idea of it, because, you know, people see the, the work arrive and think, yep, that looks, I think, for some of us felt obvious, but how long had this, what was the length of time this actual bit of work took from sort of instigation or the first idea through to actually getting that published? I think it was about a year and a half, uh, to be honest, and that, as you say, might seem like a very long time, um, but there were many, many different uh, stakeholders to keep across on this piece of work. As you, as we'll touch on a little bit later on, we brought in some new metrics to um, to the calculation uh, and that meant that we just had to make sure that what we were releasing was absolutely robust and defendable um, and wasn't going to get attacked by, by anybody who was looking to nobble us. So that process, as well as getting this into the Environmental Impact Assessment uh, Journal, took took us uh, probably longer than we thought it would, but um, I think we did it right in the end. It landed well and has yeah. had really good, really good coverage um, in the media um, and, and with farmers as well. So as you say, it was nice to move beyond anecdote um, into actual facts and to be able to prove that New Zealand's carbon footprint for beef and lamb is amongst the lowest in the world. 
Yeah, and we'll, we'll touch a wee bit on that sort of peer review and publication and why that's important rather than get it out. I mean, I guess um, actually and it was before your time, I think you'd be aware we did quite a neat bit of work on um, carbon sequestration on, on farms. I think, um, you know, how much vegetation was there and that was a really interesting bit of work, but I know there's been some counter work or some discussion around that because that was more of a survey and an analysis rather than the, the peer review type thing. That was sort of, it was easier, I guess, for, for to be argued against. Would that be fair? That'd be fair, yeah. Um, that's right. So uh, actually, we used um, that work and the newer piece of work around carbon sequestration in this uh, in this report. Ag Research had to look at the Ministry for the Environment's updated research report yep. as well as the report that we had commissioned. And that's probably a prime example of why you need to take the time when you're doing these mm. research reports to just get them right and make sure that they're robust and stack up. Otherwise, you can get... Um, you know, it doesn't actually advance the conversation because people will be fact-checking your your data. Um, yeah, so yep. that's a good example. Yeah, no, contentious. It's a, it's a not necessarily contentious, but a hotly discussed object, and, I, and people aren't going to just take it on uh, face value. So it's nice to have the information out there sooner, but um, taking that time to make sure it's as unimpeachable unimpeachable as it can be is pretty pretty important. So, all right, we talked about how long it took, the importance of getting it right, getting it peer reviewed, etc. Uh, if you're in an elevator with somebody in a nutshell, what's the for those that haven't heard of it, describe the work in a nutshell. What was it? In a nutshell, um, this is about providing the carbon footprint of a kg of beef and a kg of sheep meat um, so that customers, consumers internationally and, in, and within New Zealand can um, think about the impact that that food is having um, on, on climate change. Um, and... In a nutshell, what it showed is that New Zealand has among, you know, has one of the lowest footprints in the world. Um, so that was really pleasing. We we um, we looked at the full end to end, so from um, cradle to grave is what they call it. People think that sounds a little bit weird when you're talking about meat, but it is the full cradle to grave footprint. So that is the full supply chain, what's happening on farm, what's happening with processing, packaging, transporting, as well as what's happening with the consumer when they cook it. So it's full transparency. There's not too many of these research reports that have got that full level of granularity in them. So we've got nothing to hide. Uh, and again, um, we think that this report will actually give consumers good confidence that New Zealand um, beef and lamb is a, you know, it's a good choice for the environment. So obviously beef and lamb New Zealand, when on a report about beef and lamb, has a vested interest, and we do, clearly. But... Um, You've talked about how it went through the process to be, you know, tested, checked. But who did the work as well? What's um, who did you know? Yeah, so um, for those that want to have faith in the work, who did it? There are three uh, authors to this report: Dr. Stuart Ledgard, who has been at Ag Research for um, a number of years and is one of New Zealand's uh, leading experts on life cycle analysis. Uh, Dr. Andre Mazetto, uh, who has is also at Ag Research, and Sally Falconer. So they're all academics um, with ag, ag research, highly experienced. Uh, obviously, ag research is a crown research institute, uh, so independent, um, completely independent from beef and lamb. And their work was um, peer-reviewed and then published in an independent academic journal, the Environmental Review Assessment. So um, it has been yeah, repeatedly reviewed, held up to rigor, um, and completely independent from beef and lamb. Yep. 
So let, um, actually, you mentioned there sort of the peer review process. So the, the several layers there, Ag Research, even though it was funded by, actually, before we get into that, who funded by Beef and Lamb New Zealand and who else uh, put funding in? Yeah, and the Meat Industry Association, so MIA so, and ourselves. So then it went to yes, yeah, so Ag Research as a um, you know a contractor, but an independent body, um, and then the peer review process. I don't know whether you want to just talk a bit about what's involved there and who who does it, how long it takes for people that aren't uh, fully aware, and and I guess the implication of that is the time it takes. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have a whole lot to add to it other than um, peer review goes off um, to further independent academics that are not in the same institution. They hold that um, uh, article up for review and come back with any questions or any um, facts that they would like clarified um, before it's then the academics have a period to, to make those adjustments or to respond to the claims. And then eventually the that work is submitted to a journal who will then also take their own time to review whether they're going to um, publish that article in a journal. So yeah, from from where to go, it, this period took us about nine months. Yeah, that that process of um, yeah contacting a journal, having it peer reviewed, making the changes, uh, getting it submitted and and published eventually was about a nine month period, I think. Yeah, it's a bit like Rachel Hunter's here. It doesn't happen overnight. It does happen, but yeah, no, nine months. <laughs> it's um well maybe yeah. More like uh, gestation, nine months before the baby was ready. Um, and the any um, comments? The journal that was chosen was it um, specifically chosen for its uh, credibility, robustness, etc. Yeah, the Environment Review Assessment Journal is um, uh, where a lot of the LCA work is is done. So that's that's the kind of natural home for it. Yep. Okay. So. Solid researchers, solid peer review, and I think I'm not sure in this case, but I know some peer review I've been involved in. It's anonymous too, so that it's um, you know without fear or favour. Ultimately, people are going to pull it apart and, and not be worried about um, being influenced by who the researchers are or who the, who the funders are. So it is it is fairly robust. Um, you've touched a wee bit on why Beef and Lamb New Zealand did it, um, and, and MIA were interested in it. I mean, it, um, maybe we just drill into that a wee bit more. It, Obviously, for consumers, it's important. But what were some of the other sort of purposes of the work that we wanted to get this information? Yeah. Um, so you've got the international consumer, obviously. You've got international um, retailers that are wanting to sell New Zealand products that need to know what the the carbon footprint of their product they're selling is. Um, and incidentally, they are more and more interested in the wider sustainability story of New Zealand as well. What are we doing with rivers and biodiversity and and uh, sequestration and so on and so forth? So retailers are really hot on this stuff. Consumers are interested in it. Domestically, we wanted to be able to let New Zealand customers know that actually red meat is a good uh, a good choice and that there are trade-offs to make in this world um, about what you what you consume and how you travel and how you live your life. There are many trade-offs. Um, we wanted to be able to get this in front of government as well. Um, clearly, Climate Change Commission have been doing plenty of work in this space, but there has been a gap in, in data. There's just been that kind of anecdata. People kind of, farmers know that they've had a, a really good, um, efficient product, but we never had the, well, actually, sorry, not never. Back in 2010, I believe, was the last LCA that was done, so 12 years ago. So we needed to get that refreshed. Um, we also wanted to begin a conversation around especially for the government, but for the wider public around the use of GWP star, so broadening out 
the metrics that are used to measure these things that hadn't been done a whole lot in LCAs before. Um, I think the Australians were the only ones who'd done a GWP star study in the past. So we wanted to just get that out, get that on paper and let people see it for what it is and get that conversation underway around um, GWP star, more accurate metrics when you're looking at um, global warming. Rather than just talking about emissions, we wanted to begin that conversation on warming. And um, certainly this report uh, casts some interesting kind of uh, light on that whole discussion. Yep. So we're going to talk a wee bit about GWP star later on in the sort of list of, of questions we want to go through. Um, I will point out we've got a whole podcast with Dave Frame and Adrian Macy on some of these issues, split gases, GWP star. I'd really encourage people to listen to that. It's detailed, as you can imagine, with those two, but um, gives some really excellent background. And we've had that out there for a wee while. But just in terms of, I mean, one of the other purposes of it, was this a bit of work, it was concurrent uh, with the, the Heiwaka Ekanoa partnership work that was going on? Was it seen as being important to to feed into that? If, and ideally, would it have been there sooner for that bit of work? Look, to be honest, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't see it as having been concurrent. I think it is a useful, um, a useful metric that can help um, everybody when they're discussing agriculture, but I don't know that it would have helped uh, Hewaka negotiations at all. I don't think that yep. changes the position on how you price emissions, uh, nor does it take away from the fact that uh, whilst we have one of the lowest footprints in the world, it doesn't mean that we don't have a job yep. to be done. So it would not have taken us out of having a Hewaka Kenoa discussion. Yep. So what, uh, well, again, this is a question I noted maybe for later, but we've got on to that topic now. What is its influence for Haywaka Ekanoa? Does it affect possibly the price or, or, or um, you know, if it wouldn't have, we would still be in a pricing mechanism. Um, there's the Haywaka Ekanoa process that went through it. Would it have had any influence or does it have any influence? I don't think it does, to be honest. Um, the, the only... Um, the only real piece, I suppose, is that as we were looking at all of this, um, how you applied GWP star is incredibly yeah. difficult. And we found that with the LCA. Um, but how you apply that at a farm level for the Hewaka Kino, um discussion is is also sort of came to light. Um, yeah. And our thinking, and this has been discussed, and I think Dave Frame, as you say, touches on it far more eloquently than I'm able to, but... Um, we just think that it's it's far too complicated to apply GWP star at a farm level. Yeah, fantastic for the sector level type of work when you're looking at an LCA, when you're looking at it at a national level target or even at global targets. Um, fantastic for that. You're using more accurate um, measurements uh, that actually talk about the impact you're having on a warming approach. But at a farm level, um, it wouldn't be something I would be recommending. Yeah. No, and Dave talks about that. In fact, I think he touches on two things, to be honest. And um, this reminds me, the link is in the blurb of this podcast to our fact sheet on this, where there is some information on that based on sort of Dave's and, and even Adrian Macy's work, I think, or reviews that there's two things there, whether you could do it at an individual farm level, because this takes GWP star for those that are aware or unaware. I think you'd need something like 20, you know, it's a significant life, data. Yeah. 20 years yeah. worth of data. Um, if the farm changes over that time, it can have compounding effects. 
Um, but so there's two things there, whether you could do it at an individual farm level, um, but whether we even should do it at an individual farm level, whether it's um, really beneficial to be for every individual farm to do that or use it at a, I guess we're talking more at an industry level is what we, we've done here in the LCA. Yeah, that'd be fair. Right. Yep. That's absolutely fair. It's probably worth, while we're talking GWP star, just to note also that neither the GWP 100 metric nor the GWP star metric are um, kind of ideal. They're not, neither of them are perfect. They're measuring different things. Um, so GWP 100 is essentially measuring the emissions of a product if that product had never existed. So it, it is a it is still a useful uh, metric in that, um, mo well, mostly because it's allowing you to do an apples with apples comparison compared to other countries. GWP star is measuring the warming impact of that product over a time period. So they're actually looking at slightly different things, and it, it is incredibly kind of nuanced and um, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And complicated, and we try and boil it down as much as possible to simple messages. But for those interested, there are, you know, we have given this stuff a lot of thought. Yep. I think the key thing there is that the split gas approach, GWP star, is more aligned with that. The, the, the methane doesn't last as long in the atmosphere as carbon. If you really want to know more, then as I say, go and listen to the podcast with uh, Dave Frame and Adrian Macy, and also uh, a video that. Uh, Dave recorded with a farmer audience, a live farmer audience in Invercargill back before Christmas is available on Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Knowledge Hub as well. And there's going to be a few links in this blurb, but we might stick that there as well. If you really want to get into some of the science, then he's the man to hear it from. Um, just on that, without getting into the specifics of that, though, that you mentioned there was an LCA done about 10 years ago. Or presumably that wouldn't have used GWP star? No, it didn't. That's right. It was just GWP 100. Um, yep. And... It does confirm that we have continued to uh, to enhance our, our performance, but yep. um, not so substantively. There's been a there's been a few changing criteria and boundaries and how we measure things. So we haven't gone out strongly with our um, footprint has improved massively between 2010 and now. It had improved slightly, but there's so many caveats around it that um, we've just essentially stuck to the story of this is where we are now with our benchmarking. And one of the other things um, I think that's that's pretty impressive about this bit of work and probably you know, contributed to the length of the time, you mentioned that cradle to grave approach. Um, so this is everything from all the farm inputs, producing it right through till it's cooked, it's eaten, or it's thrown out at the consumer end. It's not just farm gate. It's not just on the boat to the UK or anything. This is the entire life cycle of that. That would be something fairly unique, fairly... Um, Exactly. We yeah. haven't done before? No, that's right. There's only one or two studies um, globally that actually have that full cradle to grave. And I did see a little bit of, of those kind of comments coming through from people when we first released this study about what about kind of the whole, what about ism? What about the electricity that, yep. or the fertilizer or the, it was all included. So the full cradle to grave, the inputs that go into the farm, the um, transport to the processes, the electricity that the processes use, the shipping costs, the you know um, packaging, and then as you say, the consumer cooking it, and as well as any residual waste from from mm. the packaging going to landfill, that full cradle to grave has been looked at for this. So it's pretty unique, and it does one, it allows us to benchmark our performance so that we can see whether we're improving over time. Two, it gives the consumer that full trust; um, they know what's happening now, and you know, 
one of the things we did find was that 90% of the emissions take place on farm. And so that whole food miles argument is essentially redundant. New Zealand can uh, grow its product here in New Zealand and export it to China, export it to the UK, export it to the US and still have a footprint that is competitive, if not lower than domestically produced product. So yep. this this research was really important in that light. It showed that yep. food miles is just is not a thing that customers, consumers need to be worried about. Look, I um, have had quite a look at it. I don't know the science inside out, but it's a really interesting report for that basis, saying where do energy costs get incurred? Um, and then, you know, there were those questions, et cetera, but A, they're, they're arguing, as you say, passing probably 10, 15% of the total footprint of the product because most of it's happening inside the farm gate. But anybody's welcome to have a look at the full report. It's linked on Beef and Land New Zealand's website. And if they see something significant that they think the team missed, then I'm sure they'd be impressed to hear it. But I can't. You know, as you say, it goes right from not just yeah, cradle to grave, literally, to the rubbish bin at the, at, at the other side of the world. So impressive bit of work. So cradle to grave, use GWP star... And GWP 100, they were both used, weren't they, for, for comparative, being able to compare were, with uh, yeah. offshore? Yep. Yep. And the third, um, sorry, carry on, Julie. I was going to say, for those who are um, especially wanting to deep dive on this, if you look at the academic article on the Environmental Impact um, Review Journal, then they actually have a few more metrics that they've used as well. There's um, GTP um, and a couple of other metrics that I can't think of the acronyms for right now, but they've got the full the full suite yep. of uh, metrics. Yeah. All right. Sounds like another whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> so the third part, after talking about um, measuring from cradle to grave, making sure everything was incorporated, and then how that those those uh, emissions were translated into equivalents through GWP star or GWP one hundred. The other part was saying, well, okay, not all of those emissions go out into the atmosphere. Some are captured, sequestered. Um, which obviously there's another big debate about. How was sequestration dealt with in the in the analysis, Julian? Yeah, so um, the the researchers used, um, we have the report from Ministry for the Environment, which was published, uh, I think, in 2020, and there was a research report done by Auckland University of Technology for us the year before that. Um, they came up with quite different findings. Um, so the researchers... Uh, Essentially, ran their own ran, ran their own assumptions and kind of landed at a figure that was much closer to the Ministry for the Environment figure. Um, and then, so they what that allows them to do is then calculate how much sequestration there is on uh, New Zealand sheep and beef farms, and they then applied it against the different metrics. So you have GWP 100 with the sequestration and without the sequestration. So you can see the impact if you're actually including how much. Um, how much woody vegetation is being sequestered on farm um, has a has a large difference. So they did that with GWP 100 and GWP star with sequestration and without sequestration, and it and it came up with some quite startling differences. Mm. Awesome. And we're going to talk about those and what they mean, and and really importantly, I think how they should be interpreted because a lot of the stuff is you know there's some. Um, there's always margin of error. There's time difference and all those sort of things. We'll, we'll, we'll talk a wee bit about that in a minute. But basically, we've talked about who did the report, why it's robust, how long it took, and then we come out with some bottom ends. And Beef and Land New Zealand, and I think you've been key in this work, have been fairly careful in how we describe this, saying not making, again, allowing for, for some of the 
the challenges in the work, the challenges in comparison, but we're saying we're amongst the most carbon efficient in the world. Um, you know, right up there at the top end, not necessarily out alone by ourselves, the most efficient, but we're, we're amongst the most efficient in the world. First thing is, with all we've talked about, um, I guess part of the reason why we can't be precise in that, it's pretty hard to make comparisons across countries because, A, this, this was a fairly impressive study and not everybody else has done it to the same level. Yeah, exactly right. It's um, getting the exact, when the researchers did their literature review, they found 12 beef studies and I think nine sheep meat studies, although some of those sheep meat were specifically lamb, whereas some of them were sheep meat um, that you can't disaggregate. So finding, doing a big literature review, that's already slightly self-serving or you know, there's a bit of bias. The people who are doing these um, life cycle analysis tend to be the better performers in the first instance. Yep. So you're not even necessarily getting a global um, snapshot. Then they're measuring you know, where the boundary is, whether it's cradle to farm, cradle to grave, cradle to um, grocery store, cradle mm -hmm. to warehouse, different, different in every study. So again, the researchers just ran some sort of sensitivity analysis over this stuff to try and come up with uh, a methodology to allow us to compare New Zealand to the rest of the world. Yep. And it does show that, yeah, we're amongst the best, amongst being the key word, and that we're at the bottom range. And, and we think yep. that that was, um, whether it's at Farmgate or the cradle-to-grave footprint for both sheep and for beef, um, we think we can hand on heart say we're amongst the best and that we're at the lower end um, and that you know New Zealand farmers can be incredibly proud of that. Yeah. No, they're really impressive. Um, again, the figures are in the fact sheet we've linked, but if you haven't heard them, 6.01 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent per kilogram of sheep meat. The global average 14.2. The largest in the studies was 23.1. So we're 6.01, average 14.2, 23.1. Um, just out of interest, who's sort of uh, amongst, who are the others that are amongst the most efficient or who's sort of the, the on, a, on a emissions or footprint basis, who's their competitors? Yeah, so for sheep meat, it would be Australia. They are uh, incredibly close. Um, and then I believe, and this is where the, the nuance jumps in, um, the, the next kind of footprint after that was about 13 kg. That was for lamb, specifically yep. just, lamb. just lamb. So when you have sheep meat, um, which is lamb and sheep meat, mutton and so on, uh, you're going to have a slightly higher footprint. So our yep. 6.01, if we had been able to disaggregate it, might have been say let's be generous and you know over over calculate we might have been sitting at seven um and seven kg the next one up was the us at 13 kg so yep. quite a large difference so even if we had uh, split it out had been able to split it out we still would have been amongst the lowest so it's yeah yep. it's new zealand and australia well out ahead of the rest of the pack yep which probably i guess you know again it's an anecdotal thing people probably figure that given the the relative the systems in the two different countries um yeah, beef exactly. 8.97 just under 9 kilograms per uh, um, of carbon dioxide equivalent per kilogram of beef average 14.1 uh, it's interesting how internationally beef and, and sheep meat are very very similar in their their carbon footprint largest in beef though was quite a bit higher at 31 um beef's quite an interesting one i think um there's there's some um, yeah, really, it, it's it's a competitive business producing beef in terms of footprint. There's some place, some beef systems or beef countries are um, are, are doing pretty well too. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The beef systems is what comes to the fore with this one. So you've got your, your Scandinavian countries, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, that all run uh, predominantly dairy beef and um, as a result have some of the lowest footprints. Yep. New Zealand um, was right up there though. So again, much yeah. the lowest lowest in the world. And then, as you say, um, you've got some some larger footprints up there as well. But um, yeah, it's interesting. Dairy beef versus feedlot versus conventional versus organic. Uh, they all take a step up in, in carbon footprints. Yeah, interesting. And I guess the dairy beef thing is because, in simple terms, some of the footprint is attributed to milk. That's right. You're yeah. sharing some of the the maintenance costs. Yeah. So so um, yeah. No, it's it's interesting. And I guess Ian. So those countries you mentioned are their beef systems are dominated by dairy beef. Is that why they? Rather lower end, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, interesting stuff. So the next way that uh, we, we use the information, and again, pretty careful to talk about this, is that New Zealand lamb has been arguably climate neutral. You want to yeah. just explain a wee bit more about that? That we, it's a term that's been used pretty carefully, but it's pretty important. Yeah. Uh, so that is when you look at this. And the figures we were just reading out about the 6 kg for sheep meat, that was mm -hmm. using GWP100. If you use GWP star, which yep. is the metric that more accurately tracks warming, um, and obviously when, you know, this is my Dave Frame crash course, when yep. your methane emissions are going up, GWP100 actually undercounts it, so the effect of methane going up would be even more dramatic. But if it's stable, then GWP 100 overcounts it. And if it's declining, then it is also still overcounting it. It's um, it's not a very accurate metric. And so in the New Zealand context, where from 1990 through to today, our emissions have dropped some 30%, GWP 100 just wasn't doing us, isn't really doing us any justice. What GWP star has found is because that footprint has been dropping away, footprint's probably the wrong word to use, because our emissions have been dropping away mm -hmm. for, for the 20 years, so it measures 20-year data set, and for this yep. report that was from 2008 until 2018, um, it found uh, that the footprint was closer to about, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but one or two um, kg. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you include the woody sequestration, so remember uh, the woody you know, vegetation, on yep. a farm that is genuinely sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, you put that alongside your footprint, you actually end up with a negative um, factor. So for the purposes yep. of this research, we just got rid of the negative and made it zero. Uh, and so to summarize all of that, Aaron, basically yeah. over the last 20 years, there has been no additional warming from sheep meat in New Zealand. And so using the FAO terminology uh, with one of the reports they recently came out with, climate neutrality is a situation where an organization or industry is making no additional contribution to radiative forcing. That's the warming piece. And it could be regarded as consistent with climate stabilization and described as climate neutral. So, yeah, just to recap, we've created zero additional warming in, with our sheep meat over the last 20 years, and that is essentially what's being asked of um, carbon dioxide by 2050. No additional warming get to net zero. For sheep meat, that's already been um, 
achieved over a 20 year period doesn't mean that there's not uh, a further job to be done um, but it does it is again something that's you know um, really important to get out there and get the conversation going and get the government to be talking about warming not just emissions because they have different different impacts exactly good point and i think that's you know something hopefully a lot most farmers understand now it's warming's the ultimate issue not emissions and that's why we've gone particularly for the split gas approach and where these things gwp star gwp 100 come in but on that one it's really important you just neatly described it there i think julian that climate neutrality is not something beef and lamb as the paid um, advocates of the industry are, are dreaming up or, or trying to use as promote that's a an official term from the fao and um the work which we're again talking about how robust it is the time it's taken um aligns with what they're talking about exactly yep and fao just in case that term's not familiar it's the food and agricultural organization yep. of the un yeah so um obviously the initial comparisons we're talking about before were GWP 100 because that's what you can do comparisons on because lots of other countries have used it. Here for climate neutrality, we've used GWP star. Is there um, the similar any chance of comparing with with the other sheep meat producers or lamb producers around the world to say they are the same, or or is it just too early in in the piece that works too sort of uh, I guess novel for that uh, comparison to be drawn? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Australia, as I say, I said earlier, have done a similar um, LCA. Um, they were using radiative, radiative forcing, which gives you um, that whole warming result. Um, US beef and dairy industry have started to look at that. Uh, and Frank Mitlener, who's actually coming out to New Zealand next week, um, is a big proponent of that. But um, it'll be something that beef and lamb continue to advocate for and support other industry bodies around the world to um, to look into, um, because you know the whole red meat sector around the world is is struggling with the same sorts of conversations mm-hmm. and getting accurate measurements and reporting and being able to push back against lobbies that say the uh, carbon footprint of meat is too big and we should all switch to to vegetables. Um, so we need to be in this together with. Um, red meat producers around the world, and we'll be happy to share our learnings on on the LCA cycle with them. Nice. And and we'll talk a bit about, you know, policy and regulation implications at, at home, but is this sort of work um, useful uh, in, in your view or your experience talking to our, our market access, our trade policy type team and, and some of the ones around the world that um, it's useful for us as an exporter to say we've got some pretty good evidence about uh, the, the footprint of our product? Yeah, well, so interestingly, um, globally, uh, it is the GWP 100 messaging that most interests um, our producers and our you know government officials and, mm-hmm. and everybody else. That's the one that gives you the apples with apples comparison with other countries yep. and is um, is just that little bit more traditional. They still think both government officials and producers and you know. Um, marketing agencies offshore that what we have here anyway with GWP 100 amongst the lightest footprint mm-hmm. in the world is is a good news story is something that we can be incredibly okay. proud of so we have kind of dual needs here in, in New Zealand it's been important to get the GWP star story underway so that we can enhance understanding of of warming but globally it's that consistency and that kind of um, traditional methodology that's been the most useful um, yeah, we've had conversations with a range of different uh, companies that are exporting offshore and they've been certainly uh, really interested to get their hands onto this because it's going to help them yep. with their work immeasurably. Yeah. 
Awesome. Uh, that's lamb or sheep, sheep meat. What's what about beef? We're not making quite the same claim for beef. No, not 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 uh, not quite the same. It brings it down to about half of what it would be under GWP 100. Yeah. So it goes from. I don't have the figures in front of me, sorry, but I think it goes from about 22-ish kg down to about 12 or 13 kg, I think. Yeah. yeah. So we um, even passing out and, and sharing sequestration on sheep and beef farms, et cetera, we, we can't quite say that our beef production is reaching climate neutrality yet. Not yet, but, you know, making good good uh, strides towards it, I yep. think. Yeah. And awesome. I... You know, I do think that this this work uh, acknowledges all the hard work that farmers have been putting in on farm over the decades mm. with things like woody vegetation and planting, and um, so not there yet yeah. on on the beef footprint, but definitely um, when you use GWP star and include woody sequestration, uh, woody vegetation, I should say, apologies, uh, it improves really reduces that footprint yeah. quite a lot. That's good. It's um, yeah. Can't beat being informed, particularly when you're, you're debating some of the stuff either with offshore markets or regulators, as you've sort of touched on. And um, it's that old saying that Beef and Lamb New Zealand and its predecessors have always had, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. So um, exactly. you need that measurement first and foremost. Um, okay, neat bit of work. Sounds good. You read the fact sheet, you see the comparison. Sounds neat. What's the implications? Because there's policy stuff and regulation stuff going on here and there's debate over what that should be and different, you know, it's a political issue. Um, but this is information, objective information. We're confident it's robust. Um, where does it jump into the whole emissions pricing targets, Hawaka Ekanoa, um, zero carbon act type debate, for want of a better word? Yeah. Well, I would be splitting those all out um, yep. and say that we can, again, this carbon footprint is really useful for farmers to know that they are amongst the world's best. It's useful for consumers offshore to know that the New Zealand product is actually uh, a good one. And so, you know, park that, give ourselves a pat on the back. In terms of what it means politically, um, a carbon footprint isn't going to, isn't going to stray into Hewaki Kanoa territory, as I said earlier, I think. Um, but what we did want this research to do, and it's just one of a long, a bit of a strategy we have going, we want to get the government to um, we think that the methane targets need to be reviewed because they have been somewhat arbitrarily chosen for 2050, 24 to 47 percent as an arbitrary number taken from the IPCC report. So we want the government to look at methane targets and we want that to be based on warming, not on emissions. So we're currently undertaking some work around around that with dairy and Z and feds, um, which will be used to get that conversation going with the Climate Change Commission and with the government, the targets need reviewing. We need methane targets amended so that the targets are similar in effect to um, climate, on the climate to CO2's target. So remember CO2 has a no additional warming by 2050. Uh We think that methane should have a target of no additional warming by 2050 as well. That is different for long-lived gases and short-lived gases. So no additional warming for methane is not the same target is no additional warming for CO2. And unless we actually, as you were saying earlier about measuring and reporting on this stuff, unless we measure it, we can't report on it. We need the government to be reporting on warming, not just reporting on emissions. Um, 
and essentially um, we would like the government to recognize that GWP star is a valid and accurate uh, methodology metric. I think that they have started to become much more, um, what's the word, not au fait, not cognizant, um, much more comfortable the fact that this is good, robust science. It's not just yep. the agriculture picking a figure and mm, saying mm. this works for us better. This is genuine science. Um, and uh, it's recognized in places like the FAO and IPCC are starting to um, have good, robust conversations about this sort of stuff as well. So, um, yeah, we, suffice to say, we've got a bit of a program in place this year to try and influence all of that sort of stuff. And this carbon footprint was just the first cab off the rank in terms of that piece of influence. Yeah, I, I sort of keep harping on it. And, you know, um, we're in a good position here in New Zealand and our position in the world. We're probably quite fortunate too. And some of the people we have working in that uh, GWP star um, split gas approach here in New Zealand as well. And I've mentioned a couple of them before. And um, obviously, um, yeah, the stars have aligned on what's been a fairly difficult topic. But I, ju I just want to pick up on something you said there. And I actually made a note of it before. That's a key one. This bit of work is that the targets for the individual gases, methane, carbon dioxide, nitrous, are, are a separate issue to what we tend to put Haywaka Ekanoa, and it's the targets where this sort of work can be really beneficial or uh, effective or, you know, what it's really useful in the, in the discussion around the targets. And that's um, when people are thinking about this work, it's that in relation to the targets, they need to be considering it. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Let's keep it separate um, and keep in mind that the consumers have found this useful, domestic consumers, the public, and um, and international consumers, and then yeah, keep in mind the targets. We don't want to be chasing 24 to 47 percent for 2050 if it doesn't make sense, and if it's not acknowledged by the government that what they're asking of the agricultural sector is above and beyond what they're asking of CO2. So it needs to be fully understood and put out there, and we want that conversation to be had sooner rather than later. And the more our sheep and beef farmers understand some of the stuff and are um, supportive of it too, the better, I think. Um, last question really is basically the where to from here one, Julian. And and one of the key ones, I guess, uh, an aspect of that is you mentioned this is um, GWP star is a time series, 20 years. This is a 2008 to 2018 bit of analysis. Now things move on. Are there plans? This has been done a snapshot in time. That's part of the reason why we talk about arguably climate neutral, even though the figure was negative because it's a snapshot in time. Plans to repeat this, make it an ongoing thing. Um, is it too much to do that? What's the, what's the, yeah, that we don't want to just uh, put this aside and have it grow dust. Obviously, it would be interesting to look at it again in future. Absolutely. I mean, we're having conversations with, um, with organizations that can measure this stuff as we hope to see technologies come on board. Um, we need to be able to measure those as well so that if there are changes, people are able to get recognition for that. Um, we're also talking to companies around things like uh, satellite imaging so that we can properly capture carbon sequestration in a much more nimble and agile um, manner. With, at the moment, we collect a lot of that um, with our economic service managers who are going on farm and interviewing farmers, and it takes quite a lot of time. We want to be able to get that far more efficient and robust and actually have farmers recognized for the sequestration that they're capturing. Um, but in terms of a, a carbon footprint, a life cycle assessment, it is a long piece of work. It has cost a bit of money and takes a long time. So um, 
we'll be looking at how we can kind of integrate some of those learnings into our day-to-day work, things like that, um, you know, the improvements from mitigations, whether it's the bolus or the vaccine or the this or that, whenever they come online, sheep genetics, there's a range of different aspects that we want to make sure farmers are recognised for um, without necessarily having to go back to doing a full life cycle assessment in the near future. Brilliant. Okay. We've covered a fair bit. Um, it's a pretty detailed subject. As I say, we've got other podcasts and videos that provide more background. If you really want to get into the weeds on this one, no pun intended, we've got um, a fact sheet that we'll link, which is basically summarising a lot of what we've, we've talked about here today, our frequently asked questions. But um, before we wrap up, I don't, Julian, anything else you wanted to talk about, you've forgotten? No, I think we've been wide-ranging. Yep, I think so. Nice. Uh, yeah, thank okay. you. Oh, thank you. So, look, thank you. Uh, that was Julian Ashby, who is Chief Insight Officer at Beef and Lamb New Zealand. Um, yep, follow the links. There's plenty more on our website, as you can imagine, that we've got several web pages developed, uh, devoted to this bit of work and the implications of it and some of the other stuff that Beef and Lamb New Zealand are, go- are doing. But for now, I think that's been 50-odd minutes of some fairly uh, heavy-duty stuff on, on um, climate science. So, Julian, thank you very much for your time. Yes, thanks, Aaron.